Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. This is the word of God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Our Father, we give you thanks for this day, this chance to look at this wonderful passage. We pray that you would grant us what Paul prayed for believers 2,000 years ago, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to the truth that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The best mind-altering drug is truth. The best mind-altering drug is truth. Believe it or not, a Hollywood actress said that. Lily Tomlin. Some of you say, I've never heard of Lily Tomlin. Well, I was going to call her elderly until I looked her up and realized she and my mother, who, are, who is present here, are very close in age. So I will not call Lily Tomlin elderly. In fact, Mom, I want to reassure you that she's still alive. At least as of two days ago when I checked. The best mind-altering drug is truth, so she says. And I think the Apostle Paul would at least give a little smirk to that. A, A little nod to that. But he would say that falls far short of what I pray for you and for the churches and believers that I know. Because Paul is about talking about truth and the depths of what he wants to accomplish it in our lives. And so his Paul, his prayer is about truth still changing believers. Not just when they become a new creation in Christ, but he is about Praying that truth, by the work of God's Spirit, would continue to change people throughout their lives. And so I want to talk about that, maybe give you a snapshot of how we are going to look at this. This passage is the kind of passage that if you and I were in the 1620s or 30s near Plymouth Rock, and I was your pastor, and I, heaven forbid, come from Scotland where I was extra detailed in my preaching, I might say, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 to 23, and I hope to wind down sometime in late August. But I've been only given about 40 minutes, and if it's not going well, I'll get the nod from Nate to shorten it even beyond that. So I need to jump into this passage and realize and say to you, There's any number of ways a passage like this could be attacked. It could be viewed and saying, this is such an example of how to pray for people. 
I want to take the angle and say, let's view it uh, at its its at its emphasis is on praying and make this a song a, a, a sermon about prayer. Yes, I hope you would pray for yourselves and others in this regard, but I want it to be one that focuses on the key things that Paul prays for in others. And yearn for that to be alive in our lives and yearn for that to be something that we're wanting and praying for in others. Because the essence of is he's going to start by saying, this is something for believers. This is a prayer I can only pray for believers. He's going to go on to give us some instruction about how the Holy Spirit doesn't just make us a new creation in Christ when by faith we surrender our lives to Him, but the Holy Spirit wants to continue to see truth changing us by, by enlightening our minds, illuminating our hearts, our very being, to make truth in an ongoing way alive and active in our lives. And then Paul's going to say, and there's three specific ways that I want to focus on that for you. I, I want to pray that you, believer... Are, are having the Holy Spirit illuminate your hearts and minds in three specific ways. The hope you have in Jesus, the inheritance you have from the Father, and, and the realization that God's power, the same power that did such phenomenal things, this resurrection power, is towards you and is available right here and now in your life. So with that in mind, I want to begin by just looking at the first two verses and, and narrow the focus of who Paul is praying for. You say, narrow the focus of Paul's prayers? Paul prayed for all kinds of people. Amen. We know he's in chains in Ephesians 6, verses, verse, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10. But he's praying even from his prison cell. We know for Caesar and those who put him there, because he urges us to do that. We know that, that wayward believers from other churches come to mind, and he's praying that, that they would come back to the fold. They would get right again with God. He's, he's praying for those that he sat down in churches and coffee shops around Asia Minor and shared the gospel, that they would come to faith. And, of course, he's praying for the churches, for the elders and deacons, for the ones heading up women's ministry, the ones teaching the children. He's praying for all kinds of people, but here he is praying for believers. And we know that because he begins in verses 15 and 16 by saying, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in our prayers, that, and then he goes on to be specific about what he's praying for. As he talks here, we realize something very important. It's not new news, I think, to most of you. But for Paul to hear that someone has a faith in the Lord Jesus, and someone has a love for all the saints, not just the ones you kind of like at church, but all the saints that it's as if Paul can say, if I know that about somebody, and I know that's true, then I know that they're in Christ. That, that by itself 
is such a strong indication of a genuine faith, of a new creation, of someone living out their faith, that I know I'm praying for believers when I hear about you, of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and that you love all the saints. It's a great summary of what Paul says is sufficient in his hearing to say, I'm praying for believers. And he goes on to say, very specifically, as I pray for believers, the reason I need to pray for believers in what follows is there's the, they're the ones that have the Holy Spirit within them. We know that from other places in the Scriptures. And this is about the Holy Spirit doing a work. It's about the Holy Spirit doing some things that the Holy Spirit does not do in the same way for someone who is not a Christian. And we learn that from other places in the Scriptures. Let me give you an example. Paul, when he's teaching the Corinthians, would say to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person, meaning the person who is not a new creation in Christ, does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand. But the upside is that with the Spirit's work, we do understand and accept and not consider the Scripture's folly, but the wisdom from God. It's God's gift to us that we're willing to accept because of the Spirit's work in our, in our hearts and minds. It's not just the Spirit's work that we accept the Scriptures when we become a believer, but, but we're able to understand it in a way that a non-believer is not able to. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He, he takes the simple analogy of creation. And he says, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit now takes your heart that used to be darkness. Think of the, the dark brooding of creation before God's light was commanded to enter. That was what your heart was like before you came to Christ and the Spirit began to work on your heart and mind in a new way. And, and he has taken that dark, brooding, gloomy place of your heart and shined light in it. That's the analogy that God's Spirit gives. So that you have the light of the knowledge of Jesus. So your mind and heart are able to understand. Your mind and heart, because of the Spirit's work when it comes to truth, now hunger for it like the psalmist. When he says... Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous truths that you have in your law. We hunger for God's words. And now in this passage, building on all these other ways in which the Holy Spirit works, we're, 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 we're introduced, we're, we're told something even more. That, that the... God's truth is not just something we're willing to accept, not just willing we're something we're able to understand in new ways, not just something that we're able to hunger for, but something now that we can have an ongoing, growing illumination, a growing enlightenment of just what those truths mean to us. Now, what do you mean by that? 
You're saying that, that we have new revelation beyond the scriptures? Not at all. That's not what this is teaching. But it is teaching, as we see in these key verses, that, that as J.R. Parker would say, when God's Spirit illuminates our hearts about truths that are in His Word, it enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is before us. That the Holy Spirit desires to do a work, and Paul's praying for it, in which we grasp and we love in an increasing way the truths that we have before us in His Word. I want to make sure that you see the verses that reinforce that. It begins, we could say, in, in verses 17 and in 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. There's a lot there, isn't there? But you can hear in those words that it's more than just an intellectual knowledge. Paul wants the eyes of your heart. It's talk about a mixed metaphor. He wants somehow the, the ability for our whole being, our, our, our heart, far more than just our intellect, to, to increasingly see what the truths of Scripture mean. I, I think I'm experiencing that. Uh, let me just give you an example. You know, like some of you uh, that might be doing a, a Bible reading this year and working your way through the, through the Old and New Testament, you probably have read Genesis 1, very likely, if you're doing a Bible reading plan this year. Well, I came across verses. Maybe you've heard them before. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I've read and heard those like some of you here for quite a long time, since younger years. But I am seeing, as I was thinking about this passage, it just came to me as I read those a week or two ago, just the ways in which the truth is more true for me today than it would have been a year or two or even 20 years ago. What do I mean by that? I believe it more? No, I wouldn't say I believe it more. Am I convinced of it more? Well, maybe a deeper convincing. But what I think I would say is, is that the truth, the Holy Spirit is giving me an insight into loving that truth more. Because, because I, I was just thinking about how the truth that, that it's not good for the man to be alone is, is an example of just how much God cares about community. He, he plunked Adam in this garden with all kinds of life forms, all kinds of, of you know, inanimate life as well as, as, as well as all these species and things, and yet said it's not good that he's without community. It's not just to me about a marriage, but just the need for humanity to have other humanity. And I just thought back over the last year or two and how many, how many different ways that's been driven home to us of our need for one another. And examples that might come to mind of people you know, maybe it's hit close to home, who, who have who've had less of that and have suffered in significant ways. I, I offer that as just a, a personal example of how I'm seeing that that, that a phrase, a truth of Scripture can hit me 
in fresh ways, but I might just say deeper and, and more Holy Spirit enlightened ways of just how true the Scripture's truths are. I don't know if I necessarily understand the words more. I think the words that I just shared there are fairly straightforward. But the Holy Spirit, I believe, desires for us to better love truth and grasp truth and see it alive in our world and see it alive for us today. The truth is something that continues to need to affect us. So what are some of the specifics about what that is? Well, one is in verse 18. Look what it says. I want the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Hope is something we see in the Bible. Hope is something I do think we see in our world today. Hope sustained Jacob as he worked away for, for Rebecca for seven years, gets tricked, has to work another seven years, works 14 years for the hope of marrying Rebecca. Jesus gave an example of hope helping to propel someone through a painful time. John 16, he's talking to his disciples saying, you're going to have a sorrowful time. You know, as, and he was referring to his, his death and crucifixion that was coming up. But he said, the joy is on the other side. And he made the analogy of childbirth. And said, like a woman experiencing the, chain, the pains of childbirth anticipates, holds out hope for a child to hold and to love. And, and so much so that when that time comes, looks back and has trouble remembering how bad it was. So Jesus even talks about how necessary and how much of a gift hope is to help see us through things. But I would have to say, I don't know if the hope as it is portrayed here in the scriptures, the hope of our, especially our future hope of, of heaven, of being with Christ, is something we bring to mind near enough. Especially in comparison to the saints of biblical days, or even saints of even just a few years ago. <laughs> I would say that we just don't even talk about heaven that much. Uh, we, we give a pass to somebody who's got enough candles on their next birthday cake for four kids to roast s'mores and say, well, they're, they're far enough in years, I will allow them to talk about heaven and it's not weird and it's kind of appropriate at that point. But what if somebody started regularly talking about heaven who's under 40? Would the thought run through your mind, and I say no silliness about this at all, I hope they're okay. I, I hope something's not going on. They're depressed or something, or they're having thoughts about death or whatever. We don't talk about our hope in a way and is with a frequency that people, I think, in other years in past history held on to the same way. And so maybe there's an aspect to which what Paul was praying for Ephesians 2,000 years ago is even more needful for us. We may not be in war or experiencing intense famine or truly abandoned orphans, but I think the hope that we have in Christ, the future hope, 
to be in his presence, (coughs) is still our friend now. It still is a friend that when we're discouraged about our country's direction or the direction of a grandchild, we can hold on to. It's still something that when a job abruptly comes to an end or a relationship abruptly comes to an end, we can hold on to. The Holy Spirit intends to make hope our ally for living today. When we consider what is in store in heaven, the perfection of heaven, that there will be no bad leadership and no government waste, there will be no sinful opposition, hostile opposition to truth, that joints won't wear out, that no more bad things will invade our lives. That's a truth that should still be changing us. Like Paul said to the Corinthians, this light and momentary affliction that we call life is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We need to be praying for ourselves and and wanting in ourselves that the hope that Paul mentions here is increasingly, by the Spirit's help, alive and affecting our outlook on this life. We're to know in the second part of verse 18 the inheritance that we have. My son Jackson and I, he's 20 in another few days, we've had a running joke since his early teen years. And if he were sitting here today, rather than being down in the slopes of Telluride, he'd sit here and I absolutely think, agree with everything I'm about to say. Because I have said to him often, Jackson, you are an an entitled kid and I'm a failure as a parent. And his response over the year is, I'm definitely not an entitled kid and I'm not sure yet whether you've been a failure as a parent. Well, that's kind of the scope of the conversation. We hint at it in different ways, but that's the gist of it. You know, I looked up the word entitled. When I think of the word, I tend to think of people I know. But I wanted to look it up so I could replace some faces with the actual words. And here's what the word entitled, at least by one definition, is. Someone who expects to be handed everything without having to work for it. And you know what? My Heavenly Father is raising entitled kids by that definition. The gospel reinforces that he is in raising entitled kids. In fact, I would go so far as to say, you're not one of his kids. If there isn't some way in which this definition of being entitled has has hit you as something to embrace. Because you can't work for all of these things that are in store for you in this life, but especially the inheritance in the next. 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And none of whatever is in store for us And we don't fully know what's in store for us because the scriptures have told us we haven't heard it all. We haven't imagined it all. We haven't seen it all. 
will one day get to experience. But we only have a glimpse, even with the help of the scriptures and God's spirit, of what is in store in terms of our inheritance. The song Victory in Jesus was written in 1939 by Eugene Bartlett. It's a song that that we sing around here and many a church still sings. A great hymn of of the American church. And Eugene Bartlett uh, was born in 1885, so basically grew up in the late 1800s. He was a singer, songwriter, actually uh, with some prominence in the early 1900s. He died in 1941 at the age of 55. The songs uh, about, is, is really the victory in Jesus is about, about truths that he's known for some time taking on a greater meaning. I heard an old, old story about a Savior that come from glory. And, and he makes that, in a sense, more real in his life, even though he's been hearing it for a long time. But I think Mr. Bartlett would agree that, that the reason he had heard so much of these things is he grew up in a Christian home. In fact, a Christian home that was very much honoring the Lord with hospitality. They were often ones that, that we, we learned were, were a home in which God's people were invited. Other strangers were often invited to the dinner table. Visiting preachers and their families were invited. And the message you've heard of family hold back, well, well they had their own version, Eugene and his mama, of what he was told when company was coming over and she wasn't sure how far the grub was going to go. And so he remembers and wrote a song about just the fact that his mom used to say, when, when the food goes around, just take a potato and, and sit tight till we see what happens with the rest of the food. And, and I kid you not, he wrote a song about it. It's called, Take an Old Cold Tater and Wait. <laughs> Reflecting that Mr. Bartlett, just like the rest of us, is so much more prone on focusing on our bellies and the here and now and not what is in store ahead of us. When I was a little boy around the table at home, I remember very well when company would come. I'd have to be right still until the whole crowd ate. My mom had always told me, take a tater and wait. Well, I thought that I'd starve to death before my time would come. All that chicken, they would eat and just leave me the bun. The feet and the neck, that's all that would be left on the china plate. It makes you pretty darn weak to take an old cold tater and wait. But at age 53, some years after he wrote that song, he had a stroke. Paralyzed half his body, could no longer speak. The ministry that God had given him of, of teaching others, of, of, of touring and being a singer in churches and things, came to an end. In fact, he'd only lived two more years. But it was after he had that stroke and was literally bedridden the last two years of his life that he wrote the one song that we still hold on to. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood atoning. And I repented of my sins and won the victory. 
I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. How interesting that Mr. Bartlett, after the tragedy had come to his life, could, could pull from his past and bring truths to mind that he had certainly agreed with for many years. But they took on a new reality, a deeper reality, a, a, a conviction and a confidence and a hope and a reassurance that hadn't been there to the same degree in the years before. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in his bed after that stroke. Our inheritance, one person has said, in a word, is heaven. And Jesus is preparing a place right now for every one of us in Christ. A home for us, he promised. A perfect body for us, he promised. A place of beautiful worship, we're told in Revelation. A place of unending enjoyment with God, with our Savior, and with the saints. What an inheritance to look forward to. But Paul goes on to say, there's one more thing I want to be praying for you. One more thing for us to be praying for ourselves and for others that we know and welcome into our lives. It's verse 19, that he would pray what, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power and I've never loved a preposition this much, toward us. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he goes on to describe just what that power available to us is. When he says, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Once again, there's a lot there. You could wrestle with that passage and about the significance it teaches us about what God had did for the Lord Jesus and with his resurrection power for many a year. But I want to just focus on two aspects of, of what I see in this passage about knowing this great power of God toward you, believer. John Piper helped me here because there's a degree to which I, I just wondered, what do we do with this great power? I found myself, truthfully, floundering a bit of, of feeling like... Uh, He's comparing and saying the power that was available to raise Christ from the dead and put him at the highest place in the heavens, that is the power available to affect our lives. Piper said it this way, and I sure appreciate his honesty when he preached the sermon and said this, I know the vast majority of you do not feel that power. It sounds vague. It doesn't correspond to reality. It sounds a bit like fiction. And there are reasons that we, all of us, we Christians, do not feel this gracious, 
omnipotent power of God that is now at work toward us. Why don't we feel this resurrection power now in our lives? And Paul tells us here, right here in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of our hearts are dull to this spiritual reality. That's the reason Paul is praying, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, would better see just the greatness of the power that is available to us. And so I see two things building on what Piper said of the many wonderful things we could say. One is that the power, the version of the power available to us right here in the scriptures is the kind of power that did something so amazing, so impressive, so immeasurable as, as he would compare it to the power of raising Christ from the dead, placing him in the heavens, giving him the name above all name, giving him a position above all authorities and dominions and powers. The point is not that's going to happen to us. That's, that's the Son of God there. But that kind of power, we're told, is avail- that version of power. It's not like we've been given, the, God's put a governor on his power when he says, now I'm going to look at your life. In a way, I don't understand. Inform me if you understand it. That kind of power that what he did in Christ is available to us. We're to be encouraged by that. And also that that power rests with Jesus Christ. The one who, at the end here, we see, fills the universe and yet says he is connected to us. Look what it says in the last two verses. And God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet, gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is here communicating to us that though he fills all in all, though he has the highest place in the heavens, he is connected. He proclaims to us, he is connected to us every bit as much as a head on a human body is connected to the rest of the body. I love what, the way John Calvin says that he has the, the audacity to say something that if I didn't have this scripture and, and the testimony of other just, just much wiser men and women from history, I, I'd be afraid to say it because it would come across wrong. But listen to what Calvin says. As, as he says, Christ views himself incomplete without his church, without his bride. This is the highest honor of the church, Calvin said 500 years ago, that unless Jesus Christ is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. Not until, he is as, not until he has us as one with himself does he view himself as complete in all his parts or does he wish to be regarded as whole. Oh, there's much there and I, I don't want to border into a, a way that sounds heretical when it says he views himself as incomplete. Not imperfect morally, but he has put it on the record. That he is the head and we're the body. 
for all eternity. And though we may not really be able to grasp that until we get to heaven, Paul is saying, soak it in. Soak in that the one at the highest place, the highest, greatest powers, views you as so much a part of himself that, that he is one with you as, as, as a bridegroom is united to the bride, as a head is united to its body. Truth, I began, is a mind-altering drug. It's catchy, but we can do better. God's truth indeed saves, but once, once that truth saves, God the Spirit intends for that truth to still be changing us. And so I want us to be praying that for others. I want us to be praying Paul's prayer for ourselves. I think we're meant to accept that our hope, that our inheritance, that God's power towards us are, are things that should be an ongoing meditation, an ongoing changing truth in our lives. The truth doesn't change, but it changes us. We're to give them thought. We're to invite the Holy Spirit to advance and deepen our understanding, our grasp, our love for these truths. And if you need a boost as to thinking about your position in God's family, you need a boost to think about your inheritance or just the good things that are there in your life, I want you to hang around my son Jackson sometime. He said to me just a couple months ago, when I get my first house, Dad, do you plan to chip in? I said, Jack, you, you, you own a couple of pairs of skis and the clothes on your back. Are, are, are you looking at houses? No, no, no. I wasn't thinking of, about a house yet. But I do plan to ask you again when... I'm looking at houses, and I just thought I'd get your take on it now. I hate to admit it, but I think that boy is teaching me a lesson about how to deal with my Heavenly Father. Let's, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing one verse of that song, Victory in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you that we are challenged here to make truths that you have revealed to us even more alive in our lives. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the inheritance we have the smallest grasp of, but is real and is meant to be an encouragement in the darkness of these days on earth. Father, thank you for the mighty working power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives power that, that you used to raise him available to us. We don't understand it, but your scriptures say we're meant to revel in it and give it ongoing thought. And I give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.